we're proceeding in Revelation 3 to the next letter. So we've looked at the letter last time to the church at Sardis, and now we're moving on to Philadelphia, which of course means the city of brotherly love. And we'll read this letter first, and then we'll just make a start tonight, and then proceed to communion. We'll need a few Sundays uh, in Philadelphia. So reading in verse 7 of Revelation 3, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before you of each, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take you a crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've been doing with the other letters, just a few comments on the location of the church at Philadelphia. Philadelphia was about 30 miles inland from Sardis. The valley went uh, down uh, from uh, Sardis to the sea at Smyrna. And uh, the location of Philadelphia was nestled in the valley before you got to the mountains. So in the east of Turkey, you've got the high plateau and the valley then would go down from the mountains and reach the sea at Smyrna and Philadelphia was inland. Uh, think of Merthyrville as the gateway to the Brecon Beacons. And it's about 30 miles inland up the Taff Valley. So that's the kind of location we are thinking of. Along with Smyrna, this is the only letter where there is no criticism by Jesus of the church. All the other letters has a rebuke. Now that doesn't mean to say that Philadelphia and Smyrna were perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church, the saying goes. If you find one, get out, because you will make it imperfect. But what is interesting is that it was a small church. It wasn't powerful as some of the other churches were in its resources and in its numbers. And yet Jesus Christ lavishes 
preys upon them. It does make you think how we often look at the outward, whereas God sees the hearts. I wonder if God was uh, to write about the church situation in Wales at the moment. I wonder what churches would, as it were, appear without criticism. I think we would be surprised. Now, all I want us to do tonight is look at the identity of Jesus Christ in this letter. In all of the letters, he takes a characteristic of the vision that John had from chapter 1, and he applies it to the particular church. So Jesus identifies himself in a certain way to the Philadelphians, and that's all I want us to do tonight, is look at that identity. And in doing that, I trust we can be encouraged and challenged ourselves. So he refers to himself here as the holy and the true. Verse 7, in the middle of the verse. These things says he who is holy and he who is true. Let's just look very quickly at those two phrases. And then I want to come to the main uh, identification. Uh, Christ as the one who holds the keys. That's what we want to look at tonight. Jesus, the key holder. But before we come to it... He's the holy one. That's what holy means. Holy one. Do you know your Old Testaments? We had holy one in our call to worship. You will find it often in Isaiah. The holy one of Israel. That's how God referred to himself in the Old Testament. So when Jesus Christ uses this title to himself, he is saying, I am God. No wonder John, when he saw the risen Saviour in chapter 1, fell at his feet as one dead. He had an encounter with the Son of God. What is the meaning of holy? It's got two meanings, as we know. It means pure, but it also means, especially in regard to God, set apart. And you can combine those two, set apart as pure. And isn't that who God is in his essence? We are creatures. Even angels are created beings. God is creator. The son of God was never created. Yes, Jesus was born, became a man. But the son of God remained God from eternity and will remain God to eternity. That is why even the angels that didn't fall have to cover their eyes from beholding the face of God. He is just other. That is why there is such a thing as glory, the Shekinah glory. And when God visits his people, there is this otherness, is there not? This sense of the supernatural which you cannot work up. I mentioned before, a person attending this church, when it experienced a visitation in the 70s, even before the service started, there was a silence, not a forced silence, but just this sense of the presence of God, this other, this other. So that's the first thing. 
And Jesus here is saying, I am God. I am God. And then he's the true one. What is this? Well, it means he's truthful to begin with. He has integrity. The people that were converted in Philadelphia were Jews. And they were thrown out of the synagogue. That's why Jesus refers to the synagogue in Philadelphia as the synagogue of Satan. The Jews there were untruthful in dealing with those that came to faith. And Jesus is contrasting himself with those by saying, I am truthful. You can trust me. Now, isn't that precious in our day and age? when there's so much disinformation. We don't know when we read our phones, the news on it. Is it true? Is it true? But Jesus Christ is truthful. The God and Father of Jesus Christ is the God who cannot lie. That's encouraging, isn't it? It's challenging, but it's mightily encouraging as well. But more than that... Jesus Christ isn't just truthful. He's truth. He is the truth. So that's the first two things that are mentioned here of Jesus Christ. This is how a commentator puts it. As the Holy One of God, he commands the reverent attention of his people. As when Moses stood before the burning bush at Mount Sinai. And then Hendrickson puts it like this, the pretensions of the false, the unbelieving Jews in Philadelphia are not pleasing to him. It's like Moses standing before the burning bush. Here is King Jesus standing amongst the churches and we can't mess around with him. We can't play with him. He sees those eyes, they see right through to the hearts. And he demands our attention, doesn't he? What he's saying in his word through the spirits, we've got to listen to. Very well then, let's look at the main identification here, which is he who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Some background here. If you've got a new King James, you will notice that that word, uh, the whole of it, is in italics. That's because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. And if you noticed in our reading in Isaiah chapter 22, that is where it comes from. So what's the background here? Well, in Isaiah's day, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom were attacked by the Assyrians. Jerusalem was being attacked. And what the rulers of Judah did was turn not to God. Well, maybe they paid lip service to God. But instead of trusting in God, they put their trust in Egypt. Egypt down to the southwest. And what God does is speak through Isaiah and tells the people, why are you putting your trust in man? Why are you putting your trust in people that can't be trusted? Turn to me. 
I am the trustworthy one, the true one, the holy one. And then in our reading, we had the key holder, the steward to the house of God, Shebna. Shebna. He was trusting in Egypt. And what God did was remove him from office. He sacked him because he didn't trust God. And God puts another man in his place, a faithful steward called Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. You had that in the reading. And God says, I have made Eliakim the key holder, and he now has the keys to the house of David. Now, what's the key holder? What's the key holder? Um, I, I like to think of um, people, uh, you know, some people, they have a bunch of keys, don't they? Uh, stuck to their belts. The key holder has the authority. The key holder can open doors. When we don't have the key holder, uh, we are stuck, can't we? Uh, we're stranded outside until the key holder comes. Now, Jesus Christ is the key holder. Not just to a church building, but to much bigger things. So we're going to look at that. Uh, we may have come across this before in chapter 1. Do you remember looking at chapter 1? Where Jesus says, Do not be afraid, verse 17. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. I've got the keys to the life that's to come. I've got the keys to the life that is now. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Now then, let's look at Jesus Christ as the key holder. He's saying to his poor people in Philadelphia, you are few. You don't have much influence. You've been banished from the synagogue. The doors of the synagogue are shut to you. But don't be afraid. I've got the keys that really matter. That's what he's saying. Now then, I want to look at two keys Jesus has in his bunch. Two keys. The first is a really big key. It's the key of salvation. You know what I'm referring to? O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. I know it's a basic truth, but aren't you rejoicing this evening that our Jesus, our Saviour, has opened the way to heaven? And aren't you happy? It's been a privilege to hear of the experiences of men now who are coming to the end of their ministry before they leave the stage. And how a number of them had to suffer hardship for the sake of the gospel. Before coming to this church, I was a minister in Kair Gurle, 
the man who was there before me, the Reverend Gwilym Roberts, he had to leave the Presbyterian Church in Cairgurle. They didn't have a building to go to. More than that, he had to leave his house, the manse. He had nowhere to live because they were coming out for making a stand over the gospel. So just as these believers in Philadelphia, they were banished from the synagogue, which would have been the powerful religious community. And Jesus is saying to them, don't worry. Do you know why? The door might be shut to the synagogue to you, but the door is wide open to heaven. And that's all that matters. Uh, read about the Cluid Five in Noel Gibbard's history of the evangelical movement of Wales. William Roberts wasn't the only one to come out. Uh, Peter Milsom, I better not try and name them all, but it's exciting. I know it was difficult at the time, but uh, those men that stood for the gospel, God honoured, God honoured. And we may not be facing that kind of pressure, but even today in college or in the workplace or in our families, certain doors may be shut to us because we're Christians. And what Jesus Christ is saying to you and to me tonight is don't worry, they're not that important. What matters in the end is that you've got a place in heaven. As Luther put it, unfortunately we haven't got a recording of this grand hymn of Luther's and though they take our life, goods, our possessions, honour, our reputation, children, wife, yet is their profit small. These things shall vanish all. The city of God remaineth. Yes. And Jesus Christ is the key holder to that city. And you and I, through him, are free men and women of that city. We've gained the freedom of the new Jerusalem. Now then, how is it possible? I'm looking at basics here, but we need to be reminded of them. How is it possible, if God is holy and pure, of purer eyes than to look at sin, how can he let people like us in? How is it possible? Well, this is where the metaphors fall apart. <laughs> When you've got pictures in the Bible, one isn't enough, you know? So Jesus Christ is the key holder. But Jesus Christ in another place says, I am the door. Now, how can you have somebody who's the key holder and the door? Well, you can't have it in uh, the world of men. But in terms of God's way, yes, that's possible. Jesus Christ is the door. And Jesus Christ is more than that. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father, but by me. And this is where we've got to understand the chapter that was read with the eyes of uh, the New Testament. What is Shebna representing? The unfaithful keyholder who did not trust in God, but trusted in Egypt. He's representing you and me. He's our father, as it were. The first Adam, who in paradise was thrown out. God, as it were, sacked our parents from the Garden of Eden. And God shut the door to paradise 
Two flaming swords were put there. We failed. But God has chosen another. He's chosen an Eliakim. And do you know who Eliakim stands for? There's a greater than Eliakim. Jesus Christ. And he, the second Adam, has succeeded. How is the key of salvation possible? It is possible because Jesus Christ became our salvation. How is it possible that a holy God can accept unclean sinners into his kingdom? It is possible because Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, has taken upon himself the sin of his people. How is it possible that death, death, the last enemy, which has robbed us of paradise, how is it possible for death to be defeated? It is possible because in dealing with our sin, the sting of death is sin. Death itself has lost its power. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But there's only one response. If all other doors have been locked to us, if we are being cold-shouldered because we're Christians, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another hymn. I don't know what your situation is at the moment. I, I don't know if you're hemmed in because doors have been shut. Do you feel as if you're in a prison? Do you feel as if you're in dungeons in a prison? Not just hemmed in, but that you are chained in that prison. Do you feel that it's not the middle of the day even, but that it's midnight? That's the worst possible combination, isn't it? In a prison, in chains, at midnight. In the midnight hour, two believers sang praises to God because they had the key holder. The key of salvation was in his belt. And you can say the same, can't you? To God be the glory. Great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and what? And opened, opened with the key of salvation the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Are we appraising people? The church in Philadelphia was. They were small. They didn't have the necessary resources. But it didn't matter because they had the key of salvation. And they knew that whatever other doors were shut to them, there was a door wide open. And that door was the door to the most important place of all, the door to heaven. And so whatever the struggles, they could sing songs in the nights, songs of salvation. You know, God's people never sing better than when they are pressed. Isn't that true? No one can sing 
like a Christian who is singing because he is forced to trust in the Lord. So let's hurry on now to the second key in this bunch. This is an important key as well, not just the key of salvation. There's another key, the key of providence. Providence is God's complete control over everything. It was said of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher, great theologian, not only did he believe in the providence of God as a doctrine, he actually believed it in terms of everyday life. Do we believe that Jesus Christ holds the keys of authority over history? Do we believe that history is nothing other than his story? Do we believe the key holder has the power? Do we believe that all power and authority, where? All power and authority in the church? Yes, that's true. But it's more than that. All power and authority in the world? Yes, that's true. But it's more than that. All power and authority in heaven as well as on earth are in his hands. Even the devils are under his hands. Now that encourages me no end. Whatever happens to us only happens because he is allowing it. Don't ask why. <laughs> All I can say is as we sang, God holds the key to all unknown and I am glad if others held the key or if he gave it to me I might well be sad it's a bit simple but isn't it true aren't you glad that Jesus Christ holds the key now, uh, something of the location here of Philippi. I said it was towards the head of a valley opening up into the hills. Now, in Wales, when we think of the valley and of the hills, we think of the valley as fruitful and the hills as desolate. But in Turkey, it's the other way. Because of the climate, the plateau being higher is cooler. And so here... Philadelphia was the gateway to the hills, the gateway to fertility, the gateway uh, to success. Although if you like the mountains, even if the mountains are desolate, your heart beats a bit faster when you go somewhere, maybe like Betzakoid, which is the gateway to the mountains. But doesn't your heart beat just a little bit faster when you realize that Jesus Christ, with the key of providence, can open up, open up opportunities of great fruitfulness to you and me? Douglas Kelly, I'm using his commentary on Revelation. It's quite a read. He's got a quotation, and he says this. Only one thing is necessary 
for the church to go forward. Only one thing is necessary for the church to be fruitful. Only one thing is necessary for the church to be successful. And for the gospel to work. Do you know what that one thing is? That is for the risen Christ to use his keys. If Jesus Christ opens a door of opportunity, well, what else do we need? If we are trying frantically to force open doors of opportunity, what's the point? All we're doing is trying to create our own work. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. It's definitely not going to last for eternity. We're building with wood, hay, and stubble. But if Jesus Christ Opens a door of opportunity. Ah, that's different. Somebody once spoke in our prayer meeting about divine appointments. Do you remember that? Divine appointments. So like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we believe that every detail of our life is ordained by Christ. He's in control. And so we look and pray for those opportunities that he gives. That's very different, isn't it? To trying in our own strength, as it were, to resort to Egypt. You know what I mean? To put our trust in ourselves rather than trust in God and look to see what he is going to do. Haven't we found this to be the case? When we pray for opportunities, don't they arise? Maybe not in the way we wanted them to, But, oh, we're so slow, aren't we, to trust. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, we're going to look in more detail at this next time. But Jesus says here, I've got the key of providence, not just the key of salvation. I'm not just in control of your salvation. I'm in control of everything else. And I'm the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. We, we should be seeking God. We should be asking the Lord to show us his way. When he opens a door, no one, no one can hinder that. When he begins a work, no one can stop it. And can I say this? When he uses the keys, they go together, don't they? The key of salvation and the key of providence. Because in a way, he opens door of opportunities to what? To preach the gospel. To gossip the gospel. To evangelize. And the early church was experiencing that in a very real way. Do you know how it was happening? Jesus Christ, this is not how we think. We would think, oh Lord, just open a wonderful door of opportunity and it will all be hunky-dory. No, that's not how Jesus Christ works. If that was to happen, we would become proud. We would trust in ourselves. So what Jesus Christ often does is this. When he opens a door of opportunity, there will be opposition. And that opposition will drive us to him. And it will cause us, as it were, to have to trust in him. Isn't that the best place to be? I remember when I was in Aberystwyth, I was converted the second term 
uh, in my first year, the second term. So during that first year, the Welsh CU was tiny. It was tiny. And I only got uh, to enjoy it just for one more term. In the second year, it was much bigger. It was much bigger. And it was a privilege to be part of it. But, you know, because we had more people, more resources, we weren't in that zone where we were just forced to rely on the Lord. <laughs> There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. And that's what Jesus is saying to the Philadelphians. You have no strength or little strength. You're small. You've been shut out. But that forced them to trust in him and he opened doors my friends i'm absolutely convinced when the key of salvation is being used when the gospel is being preached or when the gospel is going out from a church with a measure of power the devil will stir up opposition we should take encouragement from that if there's no opposition we should worry but jesus christ is saying even the opposition is not a hindrance it's not a hindrance it's a further opportunity to learn of me. Well, I've got to stop there. We're going to look in more detail at this key of providence and the way Jesus opens doors uh, in the next sermon. Uh, so let's leave it at that so that we can proceed to the communion. But before we do that, we'll sing God's praises. To God be the glory great things he hath done. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender that truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Only one response, praise the Lord. So let's stand and sing.
Thank you.